Well, I'm sure some people listening know. In fact, probably most people listening know. But there may be one or two people listening who don't know that there is a Michael and Us Patreon. We constantly forget to advertise the fact that you can get uh, an extra episode and often uh, other bonus content on top of that every single week. Although not so much anymore. I think we've been doing a great job lately of reminding the people. So you people really have no excuse for not signing up at this point. (laughs) So if all of you start contributing five US dollars a month at the Al Gore level, you can help Will and us finally start to enjoy the coveted podcast Thousand Air Lifestyle, which is the real reason we got into this game in the first place. Some of our recent Patreon episodes include a discussion of the Larry the Cable Guy Iraq War Classic Delta Farce, an episode on U2's philanthropy, and a discussion of Ricky Gervais's terrible new Netflix special. What other shows given you that, folks? Patreon.com slash Michael and us. I've been working on the railroad all the live long day. I've been working on the railroad just to pass the time away. Welcome to Michael and Us. I'm Will Sloan, here as always with... Luke Savage, welcome back everyone. Uh, we are recording this on June 6th, the anniversary of the D-Day landings, of course, that marked the beginning of the liberation of Europe from Nazi tyranny, and more importantly, uh, this being a podcast out of Canada, a uh, very happy jubilee to Her Majesty the Queen and to all those <laughs> celebrating. I know I know you've been celebrating, and, and so have I. Couldn't put it better myself. I mean, I, so I was in the United States for the last couple days, and you would be surprised how much jubilee stuff I saw in Rochester, New York. I saw at least one car that had like a picture of Her Majesty like on one of the interior windshields waving. A lot of other Jubilee stuff. I mean, I think because of their fractured relationship with the Commonwealth, uh, they they fetishize it in a bizarre way. Well, if I can be a Canadian nationalist for a second, I actually think I haven't seen nearly as much of that stuff out of Canada itself, where the Queen is, you know, actually a Queen. A lot of the Jubilee buzz, you know, apart from uh, the stuff coming out of Britain, which obviously has its own kind of, you know, deranged relationship with the House of Windsor. A lot of the stuff I've seen uh, online has actually been out of the United States. And I think that's really, really funny. I mean, it's funny for the obvious and ironic reason that the whole point of the United States from the outset was, you know, hey, we don't have to do this stuff. We can be a republic. We can have popular sovereignty. No monarchy required. But I think you're right that the celebration of the monarchy and also just more broadly this the type of cachet that Britishness and British culture has in the United States. There's something almost kind of kitsch about it. And I really think it is. And I really think uh, it is uh, in its own way, just another product of the global hegemony, you know, cultural and political that the United States has enjoyed since 1945. I mean, if Britain was still a major world power, rather than being a sort of junior partner uh, in, you know, an American led global order, I don't think you would see these kinds of celebrations of the Queen. It's precisely because the Queen and everything she represents are now kind of a withered nostalgia vehicle for people of, you know, a particular generation, especially. It's because of that that people can celebrate it in the United States in the way that they often do. And of course, the United States, you know, still being the global metropole just kind of, uh, you know, sucks it all in and it ends up becoming basically equivalent to all of the secular celebrity culture and, you know, uh, other junk that Hollywood produces. Well, speaking of junk that Hollywood produces, today I was in a magazine store. Yes, there is a magazine store in Toronto. You can find it in the Annex neighborhood. Yeah, he, he sent me a fax to let me know. I was looking at the section of movie magazines, and I was just tickled uh, by a magazine called uh, 
I'm sorry to have to use this terminology, but the magazine was called Cowboys and Indians, and uh, it advertises itself as the premier magazine of the West. And the cover story was Dennis Quaid on playing Reagan. And there's a picture of Dennis Quaid on the cover recreating that iconic photo of Reagan with the cowboy hat. Forgive me, but is this like a current magazine and this is a current issue? Or is this, you know, some artifact from the 1980s or something? No, current magazine, Dennis Quaid is playing Reagan in a movie that's coming out this year. (laughs) Speaking of weathered nostalgia vehicles. And despite, or perhaps even because of its currency, it's decided to keep the uh, offensive terminology for indigenous people in the name of the magazine. Uh, Anyway, I was flipping through the magazine. I was hoping there might be some fodder in there that, you know, we could read and laugh at on this podcast, but not really. The interview with Dennis Quaid was pretty anodyne. Didn't really get into politics all that much. He talked about how he he took on the role because, you know, it was a challenge. And uh, he played Bill Clinton in a movie that we watched called The Special Relationship. And Clinton kind of gives you more to work with. Like, he's he's a very ostentatious figure, whereas Reagan was was more reserved in office, something like that. But anyway, I was looking up the Reagan movie. Doesn't sound accurate to me, by the way. But who, who am I to question the great Dennis Quaid? I was looking up the Reagan movie, and, and I was appreciating the cast. It's a mix of sort of like classic mega celebrities like John Voight and uh, Robert Davi, as well as Kevin Dillon is in it as Jack Warner, Mina Suvari as Jane Wyman, Penelope Ann Miller as Nancy Reagan. Movies like this really are the next career that you can have. Like when you're not in the mainstream anymore, when you're not in the Hollywood studios, you can have uh, Hallmark holiday movies, potentially. Uh, this is also if you can't get a TV show. You can have Hallmark holiday movies, or or potentially you can make a career in sort of Christian or Christian-adjacent right-wing movies. So is this new Reagan movie? I mean, I don't much about it, but is it, you know, it's not a big studio movie about Reagan. It's a sort of smaller studio, and it's it's definitely a right-wing film as opposed to some sort of, like, airbrushed Time magazine type Reagan movie. It's clearly intended for a right-wing audience. It has certain right-wing cast members in it. Uh, the director made Casper a spirited beginning, and Casper meets Wendy, and uh, <laughs> Cats and Dogs 3, Paws Unite. All, all very political films with similar themes as well as a number of movies with co-star john voight but clearly it's made for like a right-wing audience i mean i mean obviously anyway i think there are varying levels of these kinds of movies like there's that roe versus wade movie that came out i think last year that had jamie kennedy as one of the people fighting on the roe side that was widely mocked that i think i think milo yiannopoulos was in that one too that's an example of like a more extreme version of this this one looks like it might be a bit better behaved than some of those right-wing movies it looks like it'll just be a kind of standard hollywood hagiography but about Ronald Reagan and at a low budget. Well, hey, if there was ever a raison d'etre for this podcast, it would be to watch movies like that. So uh, stay tuned, folks. I'm I'm just so excited to see it because I'm looking at this magazine cover now on my phone and Dennis Quaid doing the iconic cowboy hat photo, but like... It's Dennis Quaid. Like, there's no makeup on him. He just, could you imagine that on a poster? It says Reagan. And it's just like, that's not Reagan. That's Dennis Quaid. I mean, I guess Anthony Hopkins didn't look like Nixon either, but sorry, that's Dennis Quaid. <laughs> well, speaking of movies that are germane to this podcast, uh, this weekend, while appearing on another podcast, I got to revisit. Wait, get what the fuck? You're on another podcast, you floozy. But I had a chance to revisit what I think is one of the foundations 
foundational texts of our podcast. I mean, there are just a few films that I think really belong uh, in this pantheon of movies, mostly from the early and mid 2000s, which are these films that appear to have a lot on their minds that appear to be, you know, exploring politics in some kind of, you know, novel or sideways kind of way, uh, but are really totally vacant of content. Films that I guess just to build on that uh, also, you know, appear to be very critical of, you know, America's political institutions, uh, but are actually underwritten with a kind of deep reverence for them that renders any critical or satirical edge, you know, completely void. Um, so I'm talking about movies like uh, Swing Vote, for example. The There's not the one I watch, but there's another film that belongs in that, you know, that aristocracy of great Michael and us films. Swing Vote is the movie where, you know, through a bunch of random, you know, very contrived circumstances, Kevin Costner, uh, you know, plays this American everyman uh, who casts the, the, the solitary vote that's going to determine who the president is. And, you know, the whole movie, sorry, I'm going to spoil Swing Vote for you if you haven't seen it. Uh, the, the movie ends uh, with him walking into the, the, you know, the voting booth to cast his ballot and it fades to black. And the, <laughs> the whole arc of the movie is just that he learns that his vote is sacred. And you know what? In the end, the real winner is democracy. And it, it doesn't matter whether he voted for one guy or the other guy. At the end of the day, the presidency is noble and politics is actually not about outcomes or ideology. It's about process. Sometime I would like to execute the project in relation to Swing Vote that Will and I have talked about for a long time, which is uh, to write a complete novelization of the movie. We will do it, and it will be based only on memory. <laughs> yeah, we, we, we're not going to rewatch it. But the film I, I revisited for the Worst of All Possible Worlds podcast uh, was Man of the Year, uh, starring Robin Williams, which I think, I don't know how many people saw it. Um, I think it did make a profit, but, you know, it wasn't critically very well received. Uh, but it's the one, you know, if you haven't seen it, you may remember the picture of Robin Williams in a sort of powdered wig on the cover. It's 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 that movie. It's the one where he plays a John Stewart-like <laughs> TV satirist who <laughs> runs for president as a joke, basically, as a protest candidate but accidentally wins and america loves him because he's he's speaking his mind he's saying the truth which is 2008 era robin williams comedy you know yeah and the truth is stuff like uh we need more accountability in government and they're all bought by lobbyists but then also illegal aliens are streaming across the border with big screen tvs it's yeah. so funny i'd forgotten that you know for the most for the most of that movie robin williams is the comedian does not really make a single like salient or substantive political point it's all just kind of like generic like he's basically doing like andrew yang's forward party kind of stuff the whole time but then the one time he gets really specific is when he puts himself to the right of the democrats and republicans on issues of immigration and national security i like the scene where lewis black delivers a very sober <laughs> monologue about tv something like tv is what really scares me you know when you watch the 1960 debate people on the radio thought Kennedy lost, but people on TV thought Kennedy won, and, and that's what TV does to people. Right, and I'm glad you brought that up, because what's so funny about Man of the Year is it's not just that it takes, you know, this you know, not actually all that interesting premise which is like, oh, what if a comedian ran for president and won? But having taken that and run with it in the most boring way imaginable, it then undercuts the entire thing by introducing through this weird subplot about, you know, electronic voting machines 
uh, malfunctioning. The you know Congress has federalized elections by contracting a single private company to let people vote through the internet or something. It turns out he was never elected president in the first place. It was all a glitch, and it's not a glitch that has any politics behind it. It's not like a glitch that excluded you know people in certain states or people from certain demographics or anything like that. It's a totally random glitch. So Man of the Year, uh, which was marketed very heavily as a film about like what if John Stewart ran for president is actually just this weird offensive against technology and it almost kind of has nothing to do with politics uh it's my favorite type of movie to do for this podcast which is you know the political film with no politics to speak of and it ends with him on weekend update with tina fey and amy poehler uh, uh chastising america for having voted for him because you have to understand he's the jester you don't vote for the jester the jester shouldn't rule the kingdom he says you know as as obama said to bernie you're a prophet and prophets don't become kings from mike judge the creator of beavis and butthead somebody's got a case of the mundus comes the movie your boss looks like you've been missing a lot of work lately well i wouldn't say i've been missing it bob (laughs) doesn't want you to see humans were not meant to sit in little cubicles that's just a straight shooter with upper management written all over them it might be more fun to just get fired and i've always wondered what that would take Office Space Rated R on February 19th. Work sucks only in theaters. Well, this episode is another super delegate pick. That's right, the super delegate patron tier voted for a lot of different options this month, and they had a big runoff poll, and this won not a majority, but a plurality of votes, which uh, let's just say that at least one and probably more than one other of the runner-ups are going to be movies that we're going to do at some point, uh, including very soon. Yeah, there's a movie called When the Wind Blows that a few listeners in particular have been uh, militating for very strongly for probably over a year. Uh, And I just want to say to our Patreon subscribers uh, who've been pushing for that one, don't worry, uh, we will do it at some point. We promise you've convinced us. Doesn't need to win a super delegate poll. We will uh, will actually get to that at some point. I'm also just going to throw it out there. Kids in the Hall Brain Candy is a movie that we've been discussing and will be doing very soon. Anyway, Office Space, 1999, Mike Judge, uh, the same year that American Beauty came out, so too did the termite art American Beauty, this beloved workplace satire that uh, failed at the box office initially, but has endured ever since as, I don't think it's even a cult classic anymore. I think it's just a full-on classic. People love this movie. Everyone loves this movie. And uh, I hadn't seen it since I was in high school, and I don't think you had ever seen it. No, I hadn't. Even though I'd seen it before, and even though it's a pretty simple movie, I I remembered pretty much every scene from having seen it once in high school, I didn't know quite what to expect. I didn't quite know what the angle of attack on the movie would be. And I guess I still don't, but clearly this is another movie that fits in that, if not exactly the Dark City, Matrix, Truman Show, part of the end of history, cultural cosmos, (laughs) uh, drink, sorry. It's instead there with movies like American Beauty and Election as like 1999 movies that are about the soullessness, the emptiness of modern life. And can we find a way out of it? Yeah, that's where I'd situate it as well. I will say right from uh, the get go, you know, cards on the table. 
I thought the movie was was good. I thought it was okay. I think for me, the satire was very emblematic of kind of the late 1990s in that, you know, I found it very punchy and very effective in certain areas, kind of lampooning certain things about office culture and uh, just the soulless nature of white collar work. But overall, as a satire of those things, uh, it left me feeling just a little bit, uh, a little bit hollow. I felt like it wanted to treat the soullessness of, you know, cubicle culture and white collar work as kind of a, a spiritual problem and a cultural problem. You know, it's just something that's sort of, you know, ambient and ubiquitous. And, you know, you can't really question it, uh, but it's just a frustrating feature of, you know, modern society. And at the end of the day, you just kind of kind of try to find something else that makes you happy, maybe working with your hands or, or maybe outside of work, you know, you just find happiness there because working in an office sucks. So I did find parts of it funny. And I definitely found the office scenes in particular pretty effective as satire. But overall, it kind of felt a bit like a sorry to bother you with the mark taken out. <laughs> I am pretty much in lockstep agreement with you on this. I thought it was quite funny throughout, although I liked the first half better than the second half. I think the first half maybe promises something that the second half doesn't deliver. But you know, it's still funny throughout. It's like a really top tier golden age Dilbert comic. All right. Well, thanks for listening to Michael and us. <laughs> well, we'll expand on those points, but I'll, I'll get into the plot a little bit because that's what we're here for. Uh, the protagonist is Peter Gibbons, played by Ron Livingston. He's an everyman. He's a cubicle drone at a software company who he estimates does 15 minutes of real solid actual work during the day. And I think anybody who has ever worked white collar cubicle labor can find things to appreciate in this character and his plight. The, these are the kinds of things that I liked about the film, because it is a very accurate depiction of what working in particular kinds of offices in particular uh, are like. And I especially appreciate the fact that this kind of vaguely, I don't know, it's some kind of tech company, what's it called, like Init Tech or something uh, that they all work for. It's not really clear what this company does. It's just, you know, an empty bureaucracy that has, you know, tons of micro bureaucracies within it. And then a further bureaucracy that's in the form of this sort of consulting company that they bring on board to figure out how to lean down, you know, the other bureaucracies. I like all that stuff. I think it's pretty accurate. If you can't find a job that you love and that really suits you, and let's face it, most people can't. The next best option is to get a job that's easy and pays well. And that's a sweet deal, but even that corrodes at the soul after a while. Like, it's not fun to spend nine to five on something that you know in your bones is not contributing anything to society. And it's not just nine to five either, because you probably wake up at 6.30 to get ready. You probably have, I don't know, 45 minutes that you're driving there or taking the subway or however you get there, then another 45 minutes back. And then when you get home, you're exhausted and it's really hard to, you know, do your novelty Michael Moore podcast. <laughs> <laughs> it's really hard to do anything except, you know, watch TV, you know, having kind of focused hobbies or self or doing any kind of self-improvement or just, you know, having the energy to read books or do anything that actually makes you happy. All of that is kind of sapped. The theory that you have eight hours a day for work, eight hours a day for you, and then eight hours a day for sleep is not true. It's <laughs> it's a fraud. Yeah, and something this film does very well, uh, like I said, is depict just the utter banality of uh, what happens during this eight hours, which is really actually more like 12. There's a really good scene early on where the main character, Peter, gets these very soporific dressing downs. Well, he gets the same dressing down, the same soporific dressing down uh, from three different, you know, superiors, because, you know, 
know, he forgot to put the cover sheet on the TPS reports. And didn't you get the memo? And they're just all reminding him of this thing uh, over and over again. And one thought this prompted in me, I mean, it's very funny to think about how, you know, the boom in white collar work that I guess, I guess it really began earlier, began in the 1970s. But by the 90s, it had become totally ubiquitous, just white collar office work, you know, we're not doing manufacturing anymore. We're in a post material economy, we're in a service economy. What's so funny is that the philosophy, the economic and political philosophy that brought that reality about justified itself in in a big way by saying that it was against bureaucracy, right? <laughs> right. The whole problem as, you know, uh, the Reaganites and others would have, would have it with, you know, America in the 70s and the 80s was that the state after the New Deal and after the Second World War uh, had become too cumbersome. It had become too intrusive. This was something that, you know, the Thatcherites believed as well. Uh, and they had this really specific critique of the state being a self-maximizing thing, right? The state is just this big, sprawling apparatus filled with people uh, who are basically bureaucrats doing make-work stuff and who seek to do really little else except uh, create more bureaucracy. And then you get to the 90s, right? And it's like, okay, well, we now have like 100,000 different companies with purposes that are completely impenetrable, where people check into completely soulless environments, where everything is regimented, where they're literally separated uh, from their co-workers by physical barriers in the form of cubicles. Like postmodern atomization is now like manifest in the actual physical design of the workplace. You have these companies that don't need to exist. They're not really existing to produce anything physical. They quite literally exist to fill space and to create employment as opposed to jobs because people need an income. So, hey, we got to stimulate employment in some way. And we're not going to have the state hire uh, people to do useful work anymore. So let's just uh, have the private sector create meaningless work instead. This is a digression from the movie, but it occurs to me that the best uh, satire of that, or at least the one that is that's always resonated me with the most, is uh, you've seen uh, the Mike Lee film Naked, right? Oh, yeah. So you remember the great sequence where, you know, where David Thewlis, who is this supernaturally articulate drifter, uh, kind of an abusive, toxic, and also brilliant and charming guy uh, who kind of is wandering around uh, London. He's shivering outside of uh, an office block uh, late into the night, and he ends up having this interaction with a security guard, who it turns out... Uh, is literally there to guard a building with nothing in it and who has to get up from his desk every hour to go around the building and tap this stupid little device at various points so that he can uh, show that he's been there and looked at this empty space to make sure that the empty space is okay. It's a brilliant film, and I think that's one of my favorite scenes in it. By the way, can I just say in defense of cubicles that I'll take them over open space (laughs) workplace (laughs) concepts because in a cubicle... You can have a little privacy. You can surf the internet without people seeing you. You can commit onanism if you want to. <laughs> you know, you get to put little things on the wall. Yeah, you can. I was going to say you can customize it. You can personalize it. You uh, can put some flair on it, perhaps. You're right. The system works. You can actualize the self. You can put up your picture of Dennis Quaid as Reagan. What, <laughs> whatever you want. I will say I found this movie very triggering because anything like this inevitably brings back memories of my work as a telemarketer. And I've talked about that on the show before. I think I talked about at length during our episode on the U.S. office. I think we also talked about it on the Tim and Eric billion dollar movie episode. Longtime fans will be able to verify that. Right. So that's a piece of real estate that we've monetized pretty hard already. (laughs) 
But I can't remember if I shared uh, this particular detail, speaking of cubicles. I mean, so we did not get to customize our cubicles. We actually had different cubicles every day we were there. We were moved around because, you know, they couldn't even give us that, right? The work is so dislocating, you're not even allowed to just like have your own cubicle that you regularly work at. But there was this one guy who I guess had been the top salesman at the company, which seemed like a very big deal at the time. I remember him boasting that he made, uh, I think it was $45,000 one year, uh, which was a king's ransom at the time, and actually was a lot of money uh, considering how much the company paid. But this guy, uh, by virtue of his uh, position and his prestige, he got to have his own cubicle, and he personalized it by putting a little handwritten sign on it that said, Mr. Protocol, because the company was called Protocol Direct Marketing. Uh, Gareth Keenan investigates. (laughs) Yeah, very much uh, assistant to the regional manager kind of energy. (laughs) Anyway, the inciting incident of the plot is Peter goes to see a hypnotherapist in hopes of dealing with his crushing ennui. Uh, One funny part of the movie is he's talking to the hypnotherapist and saying, every day is the worst day of my life. Well, does that mean this is the worst day of your life? Yes, it is. The therapist puts him into a relaxed, hypnotic state, but suffers a fatal heart attack before he can snap him out of it. So... So Peter has basically gone full Bullworth while he's been under. And with his inhibitions shed, he resolves to essentially give up on his job. He's going to be sleeping in. He's going to be ignoring calls, skipping work altogether, even. By the way, I do think the spell wears off about halfway through the movie because he just becomes normal again after a couple (laughs) of scenes. One detail I do like about Peter, the main character, uh, is that his ultimate fantasy is just to do nothing. Which is good. It's in opposition to most of American culture that tells you that you get spiritual fulfillment from work. Yeah, or alternatively, like even if you are complaining about work, the solution is just, oh, we can find a different job that's more spiritually fulfilling, which I guess ultimately the film does dabble in that a little bit, but more likely just tells you, uh, well, there's a way out of this and it's by, you know, becoming famous or, you know, starting your own company or something. Like if participating in capitalism isn't uh, something you find spiritually rewarding, uh, the problem is just that you're not participating hard enough. Anyway, during Peter's spiritual awakening, the company has brought in two consultants to assist with downsizing. They are impressed by Peter's blunt honesty and advise that he be promoted. However, they also plan on firing his two close friends, Samir and Michael Bolton. Uh, Yes, he has the same name as the famous musician. That's a funny running gag in the movie. Peter and his friends team up then on a conspiracy to rob the place blind before they're thrown out. They devise a plan to steal money from the company by planting a piece of computer code in the system that will divert fractions of pennies into a shared bank account. Uh, As is mentioned a couple of times, it's like what happens in Superman 3. (laughs) However, things do not go according to plan. The code is miscalculated and instead steals over $300,000 over a single weekend. They are destined for the slammer. I mean, I, I guess like I'm just going to spoil the movie. Obviously, I, I we still we're 300 however many episodes in, and we haven't established spoiler protocol. But uh, I'm saying spoilers are okay on this show because well, we, we already ruined Swing Vote. <laughs> we are serious film criticism, and serious <laughs> film criticism must deal with the whole text. We're not merely <laughs> consumer report reviewers. 
Peter is on the verge of confession, and just as he goes to confess, the building is burnt down, probably by an irate co-worker. The iconic character of Milton, the stapler-loving co-worker played by Stephen Root. Yeah, and just to jump in there, I mean, I think that character is pretty one-note and pretty mannered, but I do like the detail about him being obsessed with the stapler. And again, that's an example of uh, the kind of thing this film does really well, because that is absolutely, you know, a real kind of thing that happens in certain office settings, like people getting territorial about little gizmos or gadgets or bits of space or the etiquette in the shared kitchen or whatever it is. When you have to spend so much of your life in a single place, even if what you're doing there is totally meaningless, these kinds of dumb things uh, become very important. And that's just a further symptom of how uh, incredibly alienating a lot of modern work really is. Oh, and I forgot to mention Peter's prospective new girlfriend, Joanna, played by Jennifer Aniston, who is a server at a local TGI Fridays or TGI Fridays-like restaurant. So we get to see a dispiriting workplace from a sort of more blue-collar angle through her. Uh, The running gag with her, as you know, as everyone knows, is that her boss insists that she wear at least 15 pieces of flair. So they're like little pins and stuff that are supposed to show personality. And I know I already made this point on a previous episode, but that is, I think, one of the most dystopian things about modern work culture is all the pep and all the enthusiasm that's now expected of you. You might be making minimum wage just like a salesperson in a clothing store or something like that, but you're expected to worship the company and the CEO, but you're expected to worship the company uh, like it's a religion and worship the CEO like they're a god. And it's not enough that you just do your job and you know you sell clothes or whatever the job is. You have to show company spirit. Uh, and if you don't, you can be fired. Actually, this brings back uh, triggering memories of a job that I was at, you know, like a decade ago, where during the orientation, we had to watch a video that was a documentary, a 30 minute documentary about this place called the Pike Place Market. Wait, wait, did you work at Starbucks at some point? No, no, it was a white collar job. Because I mean, I imagine uh, Starbucks workers are probably forced to undergo something similar because Pike Place is the name of their... Oh, part the name of their roast. It's the name of their signature roast because that's, I think, or so the, you know probably fictitious company mythology goes, that's where Howard Schultz started it all. Okay, well, the Pike Place Market, maybe it's the flagship location of Starbucks, but it also has this fish market that is famous all over the world. There was a best-selling business motivation book called Fish, with an exclamation mark, that was quite popular about 20 years ago. And there was this documentary that screened in boardrooms all over the world. And the gist of this fish market is that the guys who work there are always putting on a show. Like, tourists come from all over and they watch these guys like throwing the fish at each other and doing shtick doing vaudeville type shenanigans of like oh hey i got a fish whoa and they're they're throwing it they're doing comedy with the fish while they're working and people love it and this documentary captures a lot of their shenanigans and it has interviews with the guys who are working there at that moment and there's this one interview with one of them that chilled me to the bone that i still remember all these years later where he said something like hey i mean do i want to go to work do i want to wake up at 5 a.m to load a bunch of fish in the back of a truck i mean no i hate myself i want to die i think about offing myself every day (laughs) he said no but you know what i choose my attitude every day i go to work i choose my attitude and i remember seeing that and i would not be surprised if 
the workplace culture has changed in a lot of white collar offices since not necessarily for the better but in a different way because the notion that you should bring your whole self to work has gained more mainstream approval or at least more mainstream recognition corporations are much more uh, canny in the language of mental health and wellness than they were even 10 years ago so i i remember watching this video and thinking fuck what if i don't want to throw around a fish and do what if i'm sad i assume you weren't interviewing at at a local fishmonger no but it was just a big company where every month there was a new employees orientation thing and no matter who you were no matter what job you had at this big sprawling company you took the same orientation and it was just stuff like create a word bubble with words that you think are a positive workplace (laughs) atmosphere it's like you got your crayon and you're creating this this word bubble you're you're shown like an overhead of you know two two dogs attached by the same leash and they're pulling in different directions it's like, what does this cartoon tell us? You have to form arbitrary groups with your co-workers to solve that puzzle where it's like the grain chicken and the wolf and you, how do you get them across the river? Well, we were doing these word bubble exercises and I remember being there at the table with, you know, my five co-workers who I never saw before or since because <laughs> they're from whole, entirely different parts of this big sprawling organization and like some of them were taking this exercise very seriously and I thought like, are you kidding? I'm, I'm old enough to not have to do a word exercise like this. I'm old enough to not have to watch the fish video. Let me just do the job, and if I'm happy or not is my own business. That is a a very real feature of those kinds of things. Uh, The fact that they're always so infantilizing, like it's not just the case that you're sort of being forced to be enthusiastic or to appear enthusiastic, doing these kind of mindless exercises with your coworkers where the lesson is like, oh, if we pull in the same direction, it's better for everyone. It's also that the exercises themselves like inevitably treat you like you're a total idiot, you know, like you're, you're a child. My dad had a story that he used to tell about how when he was at a company in the 90s, they flew everyone on his team out to Capri. That's right, Capri in Italy, the island. Pretty exciting to be able to do that at your workplace, but they were only there for like two days or, or a weekend, only for team building exercises. And he used to say that they made them do macaroni sculptures together, like gluing macaroni pieces <laughs> into like art together. And he was so frustrated. It's like, well, can I, can I go see the island? <laughs> Well, since we're on a roll with this, I'll share a story. (laughs) I think the new thing, uh, which in some ways takes this even further, is that as part of these exercises, there's an expectation that everyone's actually supposed to be like really vulnerable. It's like we're sharing, we're being intimate. Uh, So I remember one workplace retreat once where one of the exercises involved, you know, sharing some kind of personal item or something. And there was like almost an unspoken expectation that, you know, okay, some people are actually going to sort of well up and get like really into this. And then there was another exercise where uh, you had to pass around... I think it might have been a literal conch, like a shell or something. And then when you were holding it, everyone was supposed to give you compliments. And when someone else was holding it, you're supposed to give compliments. And I actually liked my coworkers at the job in question, but with no disrespect to them, there are certain boundaries that I don't want crossed when I'm at work. And I think the expectation of sort of being vulnerable in a workplace setting is uh, is not a legitimate one. Oh, man. I mean, we won't tell these stories forever, but this reminds me <laughs> this of... This is just going to be the whole show now. <laughs> (laughs) 
this reminds me of like five or six years ago when I was at an anti-racism workplace training where the leader of it had us all go around and say uh, the first experience of racism, visible racism that we encountered and to share our stories with that. And uh, I know that a number of people found the exercise very unpleasant. Some found it actually triggering. Uh, I I found it quite unpleasant. It felt like this sort of like, okay, well, we have an anti-racism workshop that we have to do. So uh, um, uh, how are we going to fill it? Uh, uh, Maybe we should share something. Okay, share, share your first possibly very traumatic encounter with racism. So as someone descended from Irish Catholics, you obviously talked a lot about, you know, all the all the prejudice you've you received after the thugs at Ellis Island changed your name from O'Connor to Sloan or whatever. Yeah, it was a bit like that Monty Python sketch, the four Yorkshiremen. (laughs) Structural inequality, you were lucky. We had to come over, hundred of us on a single boat, fed only a potato, 20 of us thrown off the boat because of malaria. And when we got to Canada, we weren't even allowed in a restaurant with a Protestant because we was Irish Catholic. <laughs> well, thanks for being vulnerable and, and sharing that on the podcast. I'm sure the listeners will appreciate it. To turn back to the movie, uh, the phrase pieces of flair, which is one of the main character points for the uh, Jennifer Aniston character is another example of, again, something I think the film does very well. I agree with you, it loses steam in the second half. Loses a little bit of steam, at least. There are some very memorable moments, like uh, the scene after they quit, where they go and destroy the photocopier, or whatever it is, or the fax uh, machine. Not my favorite scene in the movie. It's a little easy. I don't know. I kind of think it has a funny, symbolic power. And I think also it just would be very cathartic to destroy a photocopier in a field, especially if it was symbolic of a job you hated. So it's, you know, it's... It's pretty heavy-handed. There's not a lot of subtext, but I honestly kind of like that. For me, though, as I've alluded to already, I think where the film runs out of runway is that it's unable to situate the kind of white-collar alienation that it's in many places effectively satirizing. It's unable to situate that as anything other than just a sort of, you know, ambient reality of modern life. And the way Peter's uh, dilemma is ultimately resolved after the fire destroys uh, evidence of his and his co-workers' attempted theft of company funds, The way the film very hastily settles his arc is that he has a neighbor uh, who does construction work and seems to come home at the end of the day just as a man of simple pleasures uh, without any of this kind of alienation because, you know, he's doing things with his hands. And so at the end of the film, uh, he gets Peter a construction job and Peter seems uh, quite content. He settled things in his personal life. You know, he and Jennifer Aniston are dating. He's happy about that. He's maybe never going to like his job, but at least he can, you know, be outside, get some exercise and do something with his hands. And, you know, in the context of the film's satire, I guess there is something to that. Doing something like construction, you know, particularly if it was, you know, union construction, maybe the wage is the same or better as the job he was doing before. I don't know. It doesn't matter. In the context of the film, the point kind of makes sense. But ultimately, I wish this film had a deeper critique of just, you know, work in general. I feel like it undercuts itself a little bit by suggesting that there's something uniquely alienating about white-collar work. I mean, I suppose it complements that a bit with the subplot about Jennifer Aniston working in the restaurant. You know, she doesn't seem to like her job very much either. But ultimately, I feel like office space treats white-collar work in a way that's very siloed, where it's just a feature of the 1990s that's uniquely bad, it's alienating, it's irritating... And hey, you just got to find some happiness where you can and, you know, maybe get a job you like better. I wish the film had a different conclusion than that. I don't really know what it would be. You see, what we're actually trying to do here is we're just, we're trying to get a feel for how people spend their day at work. So if you would, would you walk us through a typical day for you? 
Yeah. Great. Well, I generally come in at least 15 minutes late. Uh, I use the side door. That way Lumberg can't see me. <laughs> and uh, after that, I just sort of space out for about an hour. Tell but, uh, space out? Yeah. I just stare at my desk. But it looks like I'm working. I do that for uh, probably another hour after lunch, too. I'd say in a given week, I probably only do about 15 minutes of real, actual work. I'm trying to figure out why I think the British office, which we both like so much, hits for me harder and, and deeper and more resonantly than this does. I mean, the British office has some more earnest, dramatic elements in it. I don't I don't necessarily think that it's offering any sort of like, you know, Marxist critique <laughs> of the modern workplace. And I'm not even sure it's necessarily more dystopian in its vision than Office Space is. But but I don't know, m- maybe it is. I mean, there's something overwhelmingly crushing, not just about the scripts, but about like the visual style of the show, where it's this sort of like really pale digital video look in the world that it creates around the office, like the pub that they all go to, the vision of Slough that we see in the opening credits. Yeah, with the roundabout and all the cars just going going round and round and that very depressing sign that says Slough Central Business District or whatever it is. But also, I mean, maybe some of the differences in the David Brent character's aspirations to something greater. I mean, both The Office, the UK version, and Office Space depict white-collar work as this sort of black hole from which nothing escapes. David Brent aspires to escaping, and he does all these sorts of, like, the TV series that's being filmed, the documentary show that he's participating in, sort of rekindles these show business aspirations. The Dawn character obviously dreams about potentially being able to survive on her aspirations to be an illustrator and visual artist. Yeah, I'm not sure I have a a totally formulated reply to your question about, you know, why does the British office hit harder uh, than something like Office Space, uh, though I I agree that it does. I think I'd begin to answer that question by just reiterating uh, a version of what you said already. The British office is ridden through with this really deep bleakness. Even though it's also a comedy, it's also very funny. The characters all feel like very desperate and and sad people. There's an atmosphere of real kind of spiritual desolation that it captures in a way that I think is very sensitive and very nuanced. And I'm not sure it's American equivalents, whether we're talking about Office Space or the American Office, which, you know, is is very funny. I've certainly uh, enjoyed a lot of it. I don't think they can really measure up. Even though the U.S. Office depicts the work at uh, Dunder Mifflin as alienating and depressing, etc. At the end of the day, I feel like uh, it doesn't really have those things on its mind quite as much. Uh, at the end of the day, Dwight Schrute, for example, is not somebody uh, who you loathe having to sit next to at work. He's not a totally insufferable person. At the end of the day, actually, you know, Jim loves Dwight. At the end of the day, everything in that show is, or almost everything in that show, I don't want to be too hard on it because it's, you know, it's a really it's crisply a good written and good show. But if we're just talking about the satire, I feel like the satire is not as penetrating because at the end of the day, everything's just kind of a laugh. And I feel like there is a streak of genuine bleakness and tragedy to the British office that neither the US equivalent or office space quite captures. Yeah, there's that moment in the British office where Tim is given a chance at a promotion, but he's dreaming of some he's hoping for some escape into something better. So he says, you know what, you should give the job to Gareth. He'll he'll be so much better at it. He'll be terrific. They give the job to Gareth. And there's it's not a reconciliation moment between the two of them. Gareth never finds out that Tim recommended him for the 
job. And he immediately starts basically swinging his dick around saying, well, there are going to be some changes around here and you better buckle up. And the other thing is it's supposed to just be an interim position. But then in the Christmas special, which is set several years after the end of season two, Gareth is still there. Tim is still there. Tim turned down the big chair and he still hasn't moved on with his life. That's the kind of tragedy that that show is able to project. And both Office Space and The Office, again, they seem to imply that this white collar work is something you'll probably never escape from. I guess Office Space comes down on the side of, well, since you'll never escape from it, find some meaning elsewhere, get a job that you'll try to hate minimally, and invest yourself emotionally in other things. The UK office says, there is no escape from this, this will continue to suck at your soul, but but maybe you will be able to get some sort of connection in the midst of it that will sustain you through this barbaric existence. And then what's vitally important is that you never give up. You never give up hoping for something better. The Dawn character is seen as more talented than David Brent is, but I think the show has a certain admiration in both characters for dreaming bigger, and it even hopes for the best for the two of them that they might be able to escape. Sorry, this is turning into uh, another episode about the UK office just because it's one of my favorite (laughs) artworks of all time. And Office Space is merely a pretty good movie. (laughs) Yeah, I enjoyed Office Space. Uh, Like the American office, I don't want to be too hard on it. I'm glad our patrons voted for us to do it. To send us out, I do have one more workplace story. Uh, Another detail from my time at the telemarketing place, which I don't think I share this. I mean, if you're a new listener, you'll enjoy this. And if you've heard this before, I apologize. Would you get mad if Mick and Keith came out and played Gimme Shelter? I don't think so, folks. But so, like I said, uh, many years ago in Hamilton, Ontario, a place that used to have a lot of well-paid manufacturing jobs, many fewer of them today, I worked at a place called Protocol Direct Marketing. Now, this company did not exist to market any product specifically because of how the economy now works. Uh, It actually was just contracted out by various companies, you know, so that its salespeople, its sales associates, as I think we were called, uh, you know, could do whatever. Sometimes it was selling stuff. Uh, If you're more fortunate, you'd be in the incoming calls division where, you know, people would call up and you'd give them technical support or they buy a set of encyclopedias or something, if that still happens. I was not fortunate enough to work in that division. So the division I worked in was under uh, what seemed like permanent contract from uh, Discover Card, which I assume needs no introduction to our American listeners. Now, let me tell you what we were doing on behalf of Discover Card. When we were put through the training, which, you know, was basically like a scene from Office Space, uh, and which hilariously, uh, you got paid for. And so what a lot of people used to do uh, was just, you know, come and sit through the training. And then I don't know, you get your seven bucks an hour or whatever it was in, you know, 2007 Canadian dollars, (laughs) not really a king's ransom. uh, And you do that for three days, and you get your 21, your check for $21 or something. Then they had the company that had a rule where it's like, hey, if you don't stay for the training six months before you can come back and do it again for $21 or whatever (laughs) it was. Might have been more than $21. It was like three afternoons, maybe. Was not very much money. Uh, Anyway, in the training, you know, they kind of didn't really explain that these were sales calls we were going to make. They sort of said, oh, yeah, you're calling people who are existing customers of of Discover. And, um, you know, you're just calling to give them uh, some information about, you know, a new service that is available and, uh, you know, which they're going to like. It's it's very beneficial. Now, I'm going to be very specific about this without fear of any legal retribution from my friends at Discover Card. It'll be clear in a moment why I'm going to be so fearless about this. But the thing we were uh, selling to people, and these absolutely were sales calls, even if they didn't want the workers doing it to really uh, know that or fully understand it, uh, we were selling people something called payment protection. 
which was like some kind of mechanism where basically... That's like when the mafia offers you protection. (laughs) (laughs) It was basically like in the event of certain things uh, happening, you know, certain life events, you know, like a hurricane destroys your house or something. uh, It wasn't that you could get your payments canceled. It was that you wouldn't have to make them for several years if you, you know, paid for this, uh, this service. And the sales tactic that we were taught to use involved reading a legal disclaimer and recording it. Uh, So, you know, you'd basically, you were trained to say something like, well, sir, I know you've had a very busy day and, you know, I've been doing this all day myself. uh, So I'm going to just get through this really quickly and get you on your way. (laughs) Love it. And uh, and then you would basically read this thing uh, in like auctioneer voice. It'd be like a... Under the statute, we have your mouth. <laughs> and then you just read this whole, like, this, you know, paragraph. It was like 10 sentences, all of this legalese, like, explaining very clearly that they're about to be charged, but in as impenetrable way as possible. Uh, and then at the end, the last sentence was something like, and I, you know, I probably did tell this detail already. The last sentence was something like, uh, do we have your approval to go ahead with payment production or something? And you'd read it like, uh, so do we, do we have your approval? Is, is... Well, no, it was worse than that. What the really hardened sales people at this place would do. And and, you know, this was an exploitive environment, but there were some people who were just totally happy to do this <laughs> and <laughs> had no problem with it. And what they would do is they would go like, do we have your payment protection? And then they would say after that, they would say, okay, sir, so can we get you on your way? And then, you know, people want to get off the phone. So they're like, fine, okay. I'm like, okay, thanks. Have a good day. And then you've got their credit card information in front of you and you just go, yep, approved. And what we were told, and you know, this is like a self-interested thing for me to say, but I absolutely did not understand this when I first got there, was that their card was going to be charged the moment they hung up the phone once you put it through. I just thought, because what we were told by the company was, oh, they're going to get a big package of stuff in the mail like after. So like they can make up their mind if they want to, you know, do it or not. Now I've shared a lot of those details on the show in the past. What I don't think I've shared is that about a year ago, maybe two years ago, uh, it occurred to me just to check in on Discover Card. and and payment protection. I was just thinking, what happened with all of that? Now, folks, if the tactics I just described to you sound like they should be illegal and sound like they were extremely misleading and dishonest, well, the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau (laughs) (laughs) and the Federal Deposit Insurance Corporation would both agree with you. Uh, So this is going to read from a story from the Washington Post. Discover to refund customers $214 million for deceptive credit card practices. Discover Financial Services, one of the company's largest credit card insurers, will refund $200 million to 3.5 million customers. It led into buying costly and unneeded credit card products federal regulators announced Monday. This was from uh, September of 2012, by the way. In some cases, customers were enrolled in the payment protection plans and other products without their consent. Discover provided scripts to call center agents that suggested customers would not be charged until they had reviewed written materials. Yeah, that sounds familiar. Yet those materials were not provided until after the firm took money from consumers. Telemarketers used scripts that, quote, failed to disclose material terms and conditions of protection products and, quote, spoke more rapidly during the mandatory disclosure portion of the sales calls, regulators said in the enforcement order against Discover. The credit card firm will also pay a civil fine of $7 million each to the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau and the Federal Deposit Insurance Corporation. $7 million is absolutely nothing. But it's nice the bastards had to pay something. 
Anyway, the stories go on like that. Uh, Discover settled the charges, as often happens in white-collar criminal cases, thanks Obama, without either admitting or denying any wrongdoing. So basically, you know, they paid some money, and I guess Discover uh, falls under the category of, you know, companies that uh, Eric Holder and Obama's Justice Department thought was too big to jail. So just a slap on the wrist, $200 million, I'm sure, and the $7 million in the civil suit. I'm sure absolutely nothing to that company. But it's nonetheless nice to know that regulators... Both became aware of and uh, were able to rule on these deceptive practices. And it was uncanny reading this story for the first time when I found it to learn that these were, you know, company-wide tactics, which is such a naive thing to say. I just thought it was a few of, you know, the quote-unquote better salespeople at protocol. But no, as is the case with almost every white-collar fraud, they set out to rip people off. It came from the top. Uh, people paid almost nothing, had to execute it, and they got away with it. Now watch this drive. <laughs> Your best on the front line Sing a little bit of these working bands